Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. reading today is again from Luke 13, except this time verses 1 through 9. We are now at the beginning of the 13th chapter of Luke. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he asked them, do you think that because those Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. And so he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It was 42 years ago now that Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador was murdered while making an offering. Archbishop Oscar Romero, one of the modern day saints of our faith, was saying a funeral mass in the chapel of the small cancer hospital where he lived. In the weeks before, Romero had become even more outspoken and challenging. El Salvador's military government and its death squads calling on them as Christians to stop repressing and killing their own people. And amid the mounting death threats intended to silence him, Romero told a reporter... I have frequently been threatened with death. I must say 
that as a Christian, I do not believe in death without resurrection. If they kill me, I shall rise again in the Salvadorian people. As he said mass that evening in the small chapel of the cancer hospital, Romero reminded the congregation of words from the gospel of John, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Moments later, as he was lifting the chalice in offering to to celebrate the Holy Eucharist, a single gunman walked into the back of the sanctuary and shot Romero through the heart. And he collapsed to the floor and died behind the altar, his blood mingled with that of the spilled sacrificial cup of Christ. He was murdered while, while making an offering. Today, a group of people tell Jesus the news. Jesus, did you hear a group of Galileans? People from Galilee were in worship and they were making their sacrificial offerings to God when suddenly a squad of soldiers from that tyrant governor Pilate showed up and killed them right then and there. Mixed their blood with the blood of the sacrifices as they died. It's just terrible. Murdered right in church. Then one among the crowd must have wondered, wondered aloud what the Galileans had done to deserve such a thing. And that's the comment that sets Jesus off. Jesus basically says, deserve? Deserve? Do, do you really think that those Galileans were, were worse sinners? than any other Galileans? And, and, that, and that, that is why that this happened to them? Because God was somehow punishing them because they deserved this? Or, or do you really think that, that when that building, that, that tower crashed down and crushed all those people? You, you know, the, the tower of Siloam, do you really think that those poor people deserved that's any more than anyone else in Jerusalem? Jeez, you guys, you guys sound like Pat Robertson. And, and other televangelists of the liking, I, I don't need any more of that kind of help. Jesus is speaking to a people who seem to believe that it is God's job to punish evil and to reward good, to make sure that the cosmic cause and effect, checkbox balances. Bad things should happen to bad people. And good things should happen to good people. Those at the front of the line should go first, and those at the back of the line should go last. That they think the world should be a, a spiritual meritocracy where life accurately sorts out the A's in the crowd from the F's in the crowd, the carrots from the sticks. We, we think that's God's job, to make sure this life is fair. God's supposed to make sure that the righteous props prosper and that the sinners are the ones who suffer. We talk a good, sophisticated theology of God's love, and God's mercy, but so often in practice, we're believers in that straightforward equation 
from the book of Deuteronomy where sin equals curses and obedience equals blessings. That's why whenever many of us do something wrong, somewhere inside of us, we're just waiting for the, the other shoe to drop, for the curse to catch up with us. That's why we ask, why me? Why me? What did I do to deserve this? Over even some of the smallest things. And really search for answers like, what on earth did I do, God? What did I do to deserve last week's ACC tournament? Lost to Virginia Tech. And what on earth? Did I do that to end up in a church with worship leaders who run it in my face? <laughs> and we ask things like this, or alternatively, when we when we we do right, we can't shake our our sense of entitlement, our justified reward, the feeling that our our selflessness has earned us something, right? Something. Many of us think that that. That just our presence here this morning in, in a pew or in a pulpit means we are deserving of some kind of heavenly benediction on our projects of life, or at least some kind of divine protection on them. And when we feel as if the suspected curse has been lifted, we then find all the answers to the questions we were searching for and those trivial blessings like, what glorious thing, God, did I do for Virginia Tech to then lose in the first round? Sometimes we don't believe in God so much as we believe in karma. We think God is this great, impartial, moral referee who is just there to enforce the rules, call the fouls, keep the scores in life. We think the world should be a kind of machine of moral consistency, where to, to pull lever A will always result in consequence B for this person. Unfortunately, though, or maybe it's fortunately, that's not the God we got. Nor is it the world we've got. We've got a God who, in, in this world at least, makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. Who sits rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We've got a God who pays the workers who arrive at, at the end of the day the same wages as those who worked all day long. And who even pays the slackers first. We've got a God in Jesus Christ who forgives murderers and consorts with adulterers while reproving Pharisees and disciplining saints. We've got a God who in mystery withholds for a time the, the just judgment that we seek who seems willing to let the weeds and the wheat all grow together and whose extreme patience and restraint and mercy sometimes seems to border on, on negligent or even senile. 
And while it's true that often one reaps what one sows in this world, it's also true that sometimes you can sow and sow and sow and sow and sow and reap only the whirlwind. And there are times, as Jesus tells his disciples, where we reap from fields, where we sow nary even a seed, where the bumper crop is all gift, where the fruit appears despite the farmer, not because of us. It's hard enough to fathom the messy mysteries of cause and effect that we encounter each day. But when it comes to terrible suffering, in particular, the the bottom is deep and it feels like we, we have no bucket. And in the face of suffering and pain, our net of meaning is just too small to, to, to deal with it. And yet that doesn't stop us from taking our little buckets, whatever they are, our little buckets and our little nets and trying to make the best meaning we can out of it, right? As human beings, we are desperate for answers. And so we take our little buckets, our little nets, and we make meaning. We fear living in incomprehensible mystery. We, we feel a frantic need in us to be able to tell a coherent story about our suffering, about whatever we're going through, with a plot that can be followed for others to watch. And so to glean meaning from that seeming madness of whatever life is throwing at us, some part of us thinks we have to explain, and often explaining means that we have to assign blame or else risk belief in a universe where there seems to be only moral chaos then. And so those murdered Galileans must be worse sinners than all those other Galileans. That must be what happened here. And those people crushed under the Tower of Siloam must have had it come into them. That must have been what happened here. And so we think that the murders and the tower and the earthquake or the miscarriage or the accident or the illness must all have to do either with just desserts or with God somehow. Because it, it is somehow easier for us to believe in an angry God or an indifferent God that it is to accept a God of love whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose love is not our love and whose justice is not, at least in this world, is not our justice. But what if, and my husband will hate this, what if God is not the almighty actuary? What if God is not the cosmic cop? What if that's not what God does? What if, what if God is not just an infinite insurance policy guaranteeing that our, our righteousness will be rewarded? What if instead the reason behind so much of, of the world's suffering is simply the fact that despite our desperate attempts to persuade others otherwise, we really do live in a world that is somehow fallen somehow broken, somehow in desperate need of redemption? What if we live in, in, a, in a fallen world where there is not a straight line between judgments of creation and the judgments of God that requires us to pray from our, like, deep in our bones that I will please be done on earth as it is in heaven? 
not always a direct message from God, but that's something, but sometimes it's it's just a general flashing warning light that we are made for more than this world as it is and has to offer now. And what if that is why bad things sometimes happen to unsuspecting people, both good and less good, and why sometimes the wicked prosper while a saint is assassinated in a sanctuary? Living in a fallen world, or to paraphrase, the great Alabama theologian Forrest Gump, sometimes manure happens. Sometimes manure just happens. You can make meaning out of it, perhaps, but it is still just manure. Do you, do you think because those Galileans died in church that they were worse sinners than all those other Galileans, Jesus says? Do you think they deserved their manure? Or do you think those people crushed under all that rubble suffered in that way because they were worse sinners than anyone else, than you? Talk about a load of manure, Jesus says. No, I tell you, no. But Jesus does not stop there. He does not allow us to walk away with some smug sense of complacency, our security now confirmed, our existential questions satisfied, as if these tragedies had nothing to do with us at all. Now Jesus apparently then tolls the bell three, and for me as well. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will all perish as they did. Unless you repent, your own death or suffering will be just as much a shock to you as it was for all those people. For Jesus, this isn't a threat as we have thought it was. This is a diagnosis from Jesus. The modern world can delude us sometimes into thinking that we really do have life under manageable control. Diseases can be cured. Sensible precautions and wise laws can safeguard against tragedy. Building inspections can keep towers from crumbling. Economic shifts can be predicted. We're intelligent, modern people. We can handle things. But there are these moments where we catch a glimpse that maybe our lives are far more fragile and precarious than we ever believed they were. Moments of vulnerability that overwhelm us after violence has occurred or towers have fallen or the earth has shook and when we get sick and moments where we face that stark and even, even terrifying reality that despite all our manicured lawns and our, our carefully laid out streets and our five-year plans, we are not as in control as we think. Moments where we realize that our money and our power and our connections or whatever else cannot save us, that living in our little North American bubble insula insulates us from the forces of sin and tragedy and death. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will all perish just as unsuspectingly as they did. 
And Jesus is not trying to scare us, but, but just trying to tell us the truth. He's trying to blow the whistle on the elaborate cover-up of our precariousness. He's trying to puncture like a dangerous, artificial bubble of security before we invest too much of it. And we don't want to hear that, right? Here we are going along thinking we were built on a solid foundation, but Jesus comes to tell us that we were sitting along a shifting fault line all along. Don't you want to send people like that away? Don't human beings want to shut those people up or even kill them? It's no wonder this man is going to a cross. But Jesus tells us anyway, he knows that the manure that happens in this world has one powerful side effect to it. It creates clarity about what really matters. In encountered tragedy tears open this holy space in us where we feel and know the fragility and precariousness of our lives in this world. And God seems to make so many unsuspecting things medicine for us in our healing in this world. And when, and when you feel that, Jesus says, and it's this moment of truth. I wonder if you've had a moment like that. It's this reality check. Let it, and let it lead you towards repentance, Jesus says. By repent, Jesus doesn't mean you roll around on the ground groveling before an angry God. A better translation is to rethink. Rethink your life. Rethink reality. In that open, fragile, vulnerable space, rethink your life. It can be medicine for you to rethink your life, to rethink where your ultimate security lies. Know that the bell is tolling for you and let it take let it take charge and change how you think about the world that you fit into and about what life is about and about what God is about and let it heal you, let it be medicine for you. And having opened that fragile and vulnerable space within us, Jesus leaves us with this curious, open-ended story. Did you notice that how that the questions about the Galileans pivot Jesus into a parable? Once there was a man who planted a fig tree in his vineyard, and he digs and he digs and he digs and he works and he works and he works to get that fig tree into the ground. And year after year, he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits for the fig tree to bear fruit. And he loves figs. There is nothing sweeter, more delightful than a fig. And he watches that fig tree grow every day, and he dreams about those figs. If he was a pious man, he let the fig tree grow for three years before he even started looking for fruit. And this man has waited for an additional three years on that. And day after day, he comes craning his neck, looking for that first fig, almost tasting it on his tongue in anticipation. And nothing, nothing at all. How long can you wait? How long can you wait? How long can you wait with a fig tree, with a church, with a job, with an addict, with a marriage, with a life that is bearing no fruit? How long can you wait? That fig tree is just taking 
and taking and taking and taking from the earth and never giving anything back. Pretty much the way we often treat the earth. That fig tree is just sucking all, all the resources out of the soil and absorbing all the nutrients and the moisture of the dirt. It's like cancer in the vineyard, not leaving enough for the other plants. And the grapevines are all crying out to the vineyard owner, how long, oh Lord? How long are we going to have to live with this fig tree here? That fig tree is not just an innocent waste of space. It's harming the vineyard. And day after day after day after day, for twice as long as the tree needed to even bear fruit, the vineyard owner frisked the tree for any sign of figs. And he, he, he listens to the vines calling out, calling out for some relief. Get rid of the fig tree. Get rid of the fig tree. And so finally he tells the gardener, just cut the thing down. Just grab the chainsaw and let's at least make some firewood out of this so-called fig tree that's apparently the only thing we're going to get out of it. At least it can't do any more harm then. And there is this, this gardener. And the gardener says, Lord, let's wait. Let's wait. Let's wait one more year. Let me dig around it and work with it. There is, there's this manure that has happened. Because manure happens. And there is this manure that has happened over here apart from the tree. But I can work with that. I can use that. We can connect the tree with the manure and make compost fertilizer out of the manure and put, put it around the tree. So that both the tree now and the manure have new life, new purpose. We don't, we don't let anything go to waste around this vineyard. Maybe I can use some of this manure to help this tree make some figs, finally. I have these times, I wonder if you have these times, where I look at the world and I see all that is wrong with it. And I see all the manure that happens. And I see a Romero gun down. I see a dictator quote Jesus and kill innocent civilians. I see people who just take and take and take and take and take and never give back and harm others and almost seem rewarded for it. And I look at the world and almost want to say, just cut it down, God. Just cut it down. Start over. Or maybe some of you, some of us, look at your life sometimes. And it seems barren and it's just not bearing any fruit and you wonder if it ever will. It's a fig tree without figs. Even matter if it were cut down. God looked at the world, God looked at us, at this struggling fig tree, and maybe within the heart of the Trinity, maybe, there was a debate about whether to work with it or just cut it down and start over. But the question is settled when Jesus comes to the vineyard. Instead of cutting down the tree, he allows himself to be cut down on the tree. He will be another Galilean whose blood Pilate mingles with the sacrifice of his life. 
And there upon the cross, as he offers his life, the whole tower of our sinfulness, the whole weary weight of our brokenness and pain and tragedy comes crashing down upon his head. He was murdered, making an offering. And we don't believe in death without resurrection. On the third day, Mary comes to the tomb, and there he is, alive, the first fruits of this new, unfallen creation. The world now lives on his gift of borrowed time. The whole single grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, and now here, here, is all of its fruit. Figs galore in Jesus. God did this with Christ's death. God can do it in our world. God can do it with your life. Repent. Think it all. Manure happens, but Christ of the composted cross can work with that. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you as people who separate, who divide the manure that happens in our lives from the glory of you and the good things we would like happen, and we forget, God, that you take manure and you add it to. <laughs> To, to the potential, to the seeds of our life. You take that manure that, that you do not want for us, that you did not give us, but you manage to use it to move it around in the things we want for our lives, and out comes figs. We bear fruit somehow in it. And so we pause for just a second, God, and we consider those things that are not as they should be, the things in our life that are not as we would have them be. Pause and just, just think about those things. And move it around. Make sense of it so that we may grow. That your presence is like water and sunshine for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.